0: to Equiocity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Modern Horse Training, a constructional guide to becoming your horse's best friend, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm also the author of a new Trimlin's book, Teddy's to the Rescue. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. In August, we indulged in a lengthy conversation with Dr. Claire St. Peter. Claire is a behavior analyst. She teaches at West Virginia University, where she has recently taken on a new role. She is now the chair of the Department of Behavioral Analysis. Earlier in the year, we had a wonderful conversation with Dr. Joe Lang, in which we talked about schedules of reinforcement. I feel as though we're having a new form of panel discussion with these podcasts. Joe gave us a lot to mull over, and now we're turning to Claire to add to the conversation. And it's really interesting to hear both of their perspectives on this subject because they were trained at different times, they were trained in different eras. And so that gives them a very different way of talking about the terms that we are exploring. So the conversation that we had with Joe prompted me to begin our conversation with Claire last time with a very basic question, which was, what actually is shaping? It's a term we all use. We know what we mean when we use it, but are we all using it to mean the same thing. After our podcast with Joe, I thought we needed to revisit some basic terminology, beginning with shaping. We ended with a question from Dominique about the distinction between requirements and schedules. And that's where we'll pick up as we jump back into the conversation.
1: So I think one of the useful things for me in, in that series with Joe which I would like to revisit with you, Claire, was the distinction he made between the requirement and the schedule. And so I'd like to maybe give an example. So let's say I have my horse. And so my requirement is that he backs one step. Okay. And I'm going to reinforce this every Time he does one step. So my requirement is one step and my schedule is what we would call a fixed ratio one, a continuous reinforcement. So now I'm going to do something different. I'm going to ask my horse to back five steps And that is going to be the response I'm looking, or maybe I should say two, because I'm now going to ask for two steps. And that is now my new criteria. It's my new requirement. And every time he backs two steps, I'm going to reinforce him. So the requirement is now two, but the schedule is still NFR 1. It's still a continuous reinforcement. Or I can say, okay, my requirement is still one step, but I'm going to change the schedule. So instead of reinforcing every step or every response, I should say, I'm going to wait and do an intermittent schedule where I'm going to reinforce only every second response so in this example after one step he has met the criteria he has met my requirement because my requirement is one but my schedule is different now my schedule is i'm going to reinforce only every two responses in both cases i'm feeding one treat for two steps it's the same. It looks the same. If someone's sitting out there, they're saying, well, she reinforces every two responses. But there's a difference. So in one, in one case, my requirement is two, and I reinforce every response. But in the other one, my requirement is one, but I don't reinforce every response. I, I reinforce every other responses. Is there a difference? Does that make any difference in our training? What does that do? because it's it's not the same, right? In one case, it's the criteria and in the other case, it's a change in the schedule.
2: Yep. whether it makes a difference or not, I don't know, because that's a research question. And so we would have to we'd have to do the study and see let the let the horse tell us if it makes a difference or not, or let the trainer tell us if it makes a difference or not. I think it might make more of a difference to the trainer than it does to the horse. But let me talk to you, but I'm in, I'm in the second camp. I'm in the camp of, I think you should call that a change in the schedule and not a change in the requirement. And let me tell you why I think that. So I like to think about the requirement as, as what it takes to move a unit or to complete a response right? And so that seems to be how you're talking about it too, Dominique, right? Like your requirement is like how you're defining the response. Yes. And so when I think about defining responses, I like to think about them as a movement cycle. And if you have listeners to the podcast, many of them will know what a movement cycle is. And so my apologies to those people to whom I'm being redundant, but just in case there are people who don't know what a movement cycle is, a movement cycle is a unit of behavior that spans the entire unit. So it has a a beginning, a middle and an end, and it ends when the learner is able to start the behavior again. And so I think it's cleaner to think about movement cycles as being static, requirements as being static, unless you're changing the topography or the form of the response. Now, in the example that you gave me, it sounds like your horse already knows how to back up. It's already taking clean steps backward, So you're not changing, you're not looking to change a feature of what would be required to back up. So you're not changing the form of the movement cycle. And to me, it's easier to think about the movement cycle as when is that? When is my horse able to do the response again? Well, if I think about it as takes a step back as my movement cycle. So in behavior analysis, when we talk about movement cycles, we often talk about them as a verb and an object of the verb. So takes a step, for example. So that's the verb. The verb is is to take or to step backward, right? Steps backwards. Either one of those would be a succinct description of a movement cycle. And that language is some behavior analysts like Rick Cabina have been real advocates of that verb object movement language or movement cycle language. So if my movement cycle is steps backward, then if you go with your first interpretation, which is you're changing the requirement, but keeping it nominally one, an FR1 or continuous reinforcement, you're changing your movement cycle every time you you change. And when I'm changing my movement cycle, I am usually looking for a change in what that form looks like. So my shaping form, Or do I have a form that I want and I'm shaping the duration or the number or the steps? Mm -hmm. And if what I'm doing is I'm changing the duration or the number that I want my learner to do. It's a repetition. Yeah, if I'm thinking about increasing repetitions or increasing duration, but I want my form to largely stay the same, I like Mm -hmm. to keep my movement cycle the same. So I would keep my movement cycle steps backward. And then I would say, okay, well that's now on an FR1. I'm looking for one steps backward. And then I might move it to an FR2. I'm looking for two steps backward. And so that helps to keep me focused on what it is that I'm looking for and how much of it am I looking for. And I think, but I have no evidence. I think that what thinking about it that way might do, and it's interesting because Alex and I had this same conversation in email <laughs> earlier this week. But what I think, what I think it might do is Help me be thoughtful as a trainer about how much am I changing that requirement, right? Because if I'm thinking about it by way of schedules, I might be thinking about how rapidly am I escalating this? I might not. But I, I think like for me thinking about like, oh, I went from an FR2 to an FR10. That's a big jump versus I changed my requirement from two steps to 10 steps. But it's I'm reinforcing every one might not seem as big to me. But it would be interesting to talk to trainers and see if they actually felt like one was different from the other in terms of how hard it would be for the learner. If I'm changing the form of the response as part of my shaping, so I don't have that step back yet. And what I'm looking for is, you know, right now my requirement is that I'm going to look for a a change in the angle of this stifle, or I'm going to look for a shift in the distribution of the horse's weight. Then I think I'm changing the requirement. And I I think that's how Joe was talking about it when he was on the podcast, right? Are you changing the requirement? Are you changing what you're looking for? Or do you have a a built response and you're changing the duration or the repetition or something else about it? And those would be schedule changes in my view. Mm -hmm. But whether it makes a functional difference or not, I think is fodder for somebody's thesis or dissertation, right? Yes. Who knows if it makes a functional difference or not? We'd have to do the study. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense, Dominic? How would you, how would you have fallen out on that argument? Do you think well, that makes sense? You thought?
1: know, it, it was one of the things in the in the podcast with Joe that was really for me quite intriguing because you know when I was talking to him about backing five steps, he said, "This is a change in the requirement. It's not a change in the schedule." And we did talk a little bit about this whole concept of unit. um, of What's the unit that we're looking for? You know, where two steps is, is it two units or is it one unit? Because I think in my training, I've been looking a lot at when I'm asking for more repetitions of uh, the same behavior, that I'm increasing my unit and that I'm still on an FR1 because I think I was guided there through the years, through my discussions with Jesus and, I don't know, that I've been looking at it as, as a change in the unit, a bigger unit. But it for him it seemed very clear. And you know, he said he was saying you're changing the requirement, you're not changing the schedule. And it's true that after if, if you're if you're thinking is that it's the schedule, then after one step, the requirement has been met. And I don't know how it is in a machine, in a skinner box. Let's say the requirement is three. The, and so the rat presses one or no, let's say, let's say the requirement is one, but the schedule is three. Okay. Is a ratio of three.
2: So our requirement is presses the lever.
1: He so has the, to press so the so lever. Every,
2: every time that that switch closes, it meets the the requirement, the, but we're on
1: a maintaining schedule. So now we're only going to reinforce every third time he does it so we're we're on a fixed ratio of 3 schedule mm-hmm. so if the rat presses the lever once and then it takes him there are no other variables in this experiment and so then it takes him i don't know 5 minutes to press the second time and then 30 seconds to press the third time bam he gets the food right cuz he's done three lever presses mm-hmm. But for sure, for me in my training, if this was happening, my horse steps one step and then it takes him like 30 seconds for the second one. I would not see this as, you know, for me, it seems to make more sense to do a three-step unit. And maybe someone would say, well, it's, it's because you're adding that timely in a timely matter
2: variable, I think where you were going is when you have ratio schedules, Mm. if I have, I'm going to, the longer, the bigger your schedule is generally the longer these pauses are. So if I have a fixed ratio 25, Mm. so my learner has to do 25 of my responses and then they get a reinforcer Mm -hmm. that produces what we call a break and run pattern. So They'll run off 25 really fast Mm -hmm. get the reinforcer and then they take a break Mm -hmm. for a little bit. And then, which we call a post reinforcement pause and then they run off 25 really fast, get the reinforcer and take a break for a little bit. So that's, and it's, it's fixed. And the, the number of responses is always the same. Mm -hmm. And so it's very, very predictable, right? Like I'm going to run off 25, and my lever pressing, run off twenty five of them. Get the reinforcer. Take a breather. Ooh, got that one done. Run off twenty five. Now, if that requirement changes, so if it's a variable ratio, and I don't know how many I have to run off, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's short, and sometimes it's long, so sometimes yeah. it's two, and sometimes it's thirty five. Exactly. Then. I don't take those breathers after Mm -hmm. I'm much more likely to get back to work right away. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's because the next one might only be two, right? I don't have to, I don't have this big, long thing, that I have to get started at sometimes when I get started and I do the first couple, they pay right off. So exactly. you see those different patterns when you have fixed ratios versus variable ratio schedules. Now, I don't remember why you started talking about Well, that,
1: because I was asking, does it make a difference in our training if we view the changes, the one versus five steps, if we view it as a change in requirement versus as a change in schedule? Because if it's a change in schedule and we start playing with that part of it, Well, maybe we get, you know, quicker responses rather than if we view it as a change in the topography of the behavior and not a change in the schedule. Do you see what I mean? That may be one place where it makes a difference. Maybe there are other places that I'm not seeing, which is why I asked the question, because we know that schedules may generate different patterns of responses. And so, but... We like yeah. like Alex says we'd have to ask the question to our
2: horses. <laughs> That's right. I can only give you an opinion. You'd have mm. to ask the horse for the actual answer. So, I think continuous reinforcement schedules tend to not generate wildly long pauses. The more responses that are required, generally the longer your pause in fixed ratios. So, I don't know that it would matter a whole lot on that front. It's an interesting it's an interesting question. You, you have to, your listeners will have to go ask their horses as Mm -hmm. to whether or not it makes a difference. I think one of the things that you mentioned that I think is important is what we know about schedules. A lot of what we know about schedules has been learned with learners who we have pretty powerful reinforcers for, who don't always have a lot of other things to do And so the nice thing about our operant chambers is that we can really tightly control the environment so we can isolate and talk about this is what the schedule does and not, Mm -hmm. you know, this is what the schedule does when it's sunny and 72 degrees because it's always the same temperature and it's always the same illumination and there's always the same number of things to do and you're always in there by yourself Mm -hmm. um, unless it's a... Study about social behavior, in which case you maybe you're not, but you're always in there with the same other creatures. And so we can really talk about what the schedule does. But I think it's worth thinking about when we're training or when I'm working with students in the schools that we've got to account for these more complex environments Mm -hmm. where you could stand and work with me or like I have little bits of grass around the edge of my arena that are coming in under the edge, or you could walk off and eat some grass, or you could look at what's happening over in the field that you can see, or you can do a lot of other things. Maybe there's horses over there today and maybe there's not, maybe it's sunny and 72 degrees, or maybe it's not. And so thinking about there's lots of other sources of reinforcement when we're working with our horses. And Joe mentioned a lot of what we call complex schedules and that's, what we need to account for when we are working in these more complex environments is that it's not just that fixed ratio schedule that we're running.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's that in combination with all of the other sources of reinforcers that our learners have access to in our training sessions. And so it's it's fun to think about how those complex environments make a difference in how our programmed schedules work, which I think is fun. Yes. So to expand
0: on that a little bit, when you are working with your horses, if we had little sort of cartoon bubbles popping up above your head, what would the text be reading in those cartoon bubbles? As you're working with your horses, how are you thinking? Are you thinking about schedules? What's buzzing through your mind as you're, say you're, so you've been for example, one of the things that you worked on recently was a backing experiment where you set up a, a using very tall cones and PVC pipe that you could suspend from the top of the cone so you could make a chute and the horses were brought into the chute and it was, can they figure out the pre-shaping, can they figure out how to back out of the chute. I've seen video from three of your horses and it's very much a study of one from each one how they responded how small a unit you had to create was very definitely part of this process in terms of how can I help this horse to be successful and then there was the one video where the lawnmower was coming closer and closer so that's a great example of There are other things going on in the environment that are going to affect the behavior. So what are you thinking about? How are you thinking as you are working the horses? Would we hear the voice of a behavior analyst? And and would we clearly say, ah, she's a behavior analyst?
2: I don't, maybe. I think so sometimes I think you definitely would go like, oh, that's, what are these weird words that this girl would say? I think definitely sometimes you would you would think about that. I like to think when I when I start with a horse, so you're right, Alex, I have four horses in my herd and they are all very, very different from each other. Oh. And they have very different experiences and they also have different quicker training backgrounds. So some of them have I have a, one horse in particular, who has an excellent foundation in, you know, kind of the, the six foundation lessons, and he can really easily bring those into play. I have a horse that came to me with very well-trained, but with traditional methods, who has a lot of skills, but who also shuts down really readily. And then I have some less experienced horses altogether. And I approach, I think, you know, it is, it's a study of one, but the very first thing that I think that I would think about Is the complexity of the environment and how much are my horses attending to me? So am I the source of reinforcement for them right now? And if I'm not the source of reinforcement, it's going to be really hard for me to train. And so we know behavior analysts. And I'm going to jump in there to say
0: that sounds like it would be the same question you would be asking if you were in a classroom. Yes. You better be the source of reinforcement in that classroom setting.
2: Yes. Or you have better have a classroom full of other learners who have good histories with you, where you are the source of reinforcement for them. And then they can be the source of reinforcement. Yeah. (laughs) That takes a long time to establish. Yeah. So it's actually exactly the same. It's the same thing if I'm working in an operant chamber. You know, do I have the sources of reinforcement? Am I under control of those? Are are those me by virtue of the computer program that I've generated? And if the answer to that question is no, you're going to go nowhere fast until the answer to that question is yes. Sure. And so I think, you know, this, is a, this boils down to a schedule of reinforcement. And it's actually a kind of schedule that Joe mentioned in the complex schedules that he rattled through he covered a lot of ground with those, but I want to spend maybe a little bit more time with just this one. And it's, it's called a concurrent schedule that matters not really, unless you want to go look it up later. But the idea is that when we're in complex environments, there's lots of different sources of reinforcement and we can mock these up in the laboratory by having one key produce reinforcement on one schedule and another key produce reinforcement on another schedule or multiple levers that produce reinforcement on different schedules, and we can make even our operant environments more complex. But what I want to see is, am I the richest source of reinforcement? And one of the things that we know is that learners of all kinds are going to allocate their behavior to the richest source of reinforcement in their environment at the moment. Now, that could be positive reinforcement or it could be negative reinforcement the fact that I'm sitting here talking with you this afternoon means that you are an abundantly rich source of reinforcement for me, right? You are the richest source of reinforcement in my environment at this moment. And I am going to say that that's because you're such pleasant people who serve as such a good source of positive reinforcement. And I'm definitely going to say it's not because I'm avoiding a bunch of other work that I have to do right now. (laughs) Um, But you can see both sides of that, right? So- if I walk in and I want to work with a horse and the horse is in the stall standing in the corner and they are not looking at me and they're staring at the corner, it's going to be a lot harder for me to shape something, particularly if when I go to try to reinforce something and offer a food pellet or you know, a, a whatever I'm using as my reinforcer, if that horse doesn't engage with me. Now, is that because I don't have the very first clicker training, horse clicker training demo that I did was for 4H and they gave me this this lovely little young student who had this lovely little very fat pony who was an older 4H pony. And they said I'm like you're going to do this clicker training demo with this pony. And I should have known better, but I did it until I showed up. And so I said like, "Okay, great what can we, like, what do you think your pony is gonna want to work for? And she's like, oh, my pony has health issues and my pony can only work for like, the straw is the only thing that this pony can eat. And they had given me a a 30 minute demo time and I went like, well, all right, we're gonna see how this goes. And that pony decided that taking a nap was a wonderful source of reinforcement in Mm. that moment. (laughs) And so I was not the source of reinforcement for that pony. We did not teach that pony very much that day (laughs) because I didn't have, I didn't have a reinforcer that was better than taking a nap at the Mm. moment. So, so. So that, that pony was telling me what the richest source of reinforcement was. And what I had to do was watch its behavior. And I could see what the richest source of reinforcement was. You see it. It's, this is a really handy skill when I'm working in classrooms. Because the students will tell me what the richest source of reinforcement is for them. How are they allocating their behavior right now? And they're going to allocate their behavior in a way that produces the richest source of reinforcement. And so that might not be the richest schedule, right? So they might have straw on an FR-1, Mm -hmm. but if there is sweet feed on a VR-100, Mm -hmm. right, like I might get a lot of behavior that seems really inexplicable to me, like, and it is, it seems really inexplicable to teachers. I trained a group of principals last week and said, like, you're not necessarily looking for the thing that pays out the most. You're going to try to find the thing that pays out the best. And that might be really, really intermittent. So I work with students where being sent to the principal's office is a huge reinforcer because They get out of class and the principal sits and talks with them and often on their way in the secretary will give them a lollipop, you know? And so you have a really big reinforcer and it maintains a lot of behavior. And so you end up with these children who are like your 300-peck pigeons. They'll engage in a lot of behavior to get one unit of reinforcer. But if that's where they're allocating their behavior, that's what the richest source of reinforcement is. And we can think about all of that as concurrent schedules. And the really neat thing for me as a researcher is that as early as the 1960s, we've had some mathematical models of that. So I can use math to talk about the relative value of different sources of reinforcement if I can figure out which responses I'm interested in and which reinforcers tend to follow them and I can try to identify where those sources of reinforcement are. So the very first thing I'm gonna do is try to make sure that I'm the richest source of reinforcement. And I'm going to think about that as a concurrent schedule. And I'm going to change my teaching environment. So you mentioned the lawnmower that was coming by, right? Like not a good time to teach. So I either need to build that and work on building distractions so that I stay the richest source of reinforcement in the face of all of these distractions, or I need to, if I want to shape something or teach it really rapidly I might need to go to a lower distraction environment where there's not as much other stuff to look at and that is stuff to be worried about or stuff that I find fun to look at right and so you've got to you got to kind of piece the environment out and I think concurrent schedules let you do that and it's hugely important for animal trainers I
0: think. oh absolutely absolutely because yeah the, do I want to get to pull you over to the grass and I can't think because there's grass on the edge of the arena or wait wait a minute, my my friends just were turned out. I should be turned out too or oh I can I can hear them passing out the hay and you're you know so yes, all of that matters Mm -hmm. very much. And and if we don't take that into consideration, then we're going to end up feeling very frustrated in our training. Mm -hmm. Because of course our horse should be paying attention to us. So so you, you think about, am I the source of, of reinforcement at the moment?
2: And and then what? And then once I'm pretty sure that I am, or at least I'm in the top two, then it's, it's determining where we're at. And so do I need to do traditional shaping where I'm changing the requirement and thinking about... I'm going to start by reinforcing one form of the behavior and then build to another form. Or do I have enough pieces already assembled that I can arrange the environment to get the behavior just to pop out and I can capture it and then change my schedule. So thinking, looping back to the example that you gave about the horses that I was working with backing on, My horse that has a really good history in the foundation lessons also has a stifle issue. And so we've been working very systematically on backing, backing is a hot behavior for him. It's something that pays off a lot because I've been trying to build hind end strength with him to get his stifle working more appropriately. And so when in doubt, he poses, puts his head down or backs up, right? So (laughs) It's a great, it's a great, it's a great array of behaviors. Yes. And so with him, I was more focused on, on changing the schedule because I could put him in and I was pretty confident that if he wasn't sure what to do, backing was going to pop out fast and he wasn't going to get really frustrated with it. I could just get it set up and I could get it going. And so then it was like, okay, well then it's one step, it's two steps, it's three steps. We're moving more further forward. We're backing further back. How smooth are those steps? Are they happening in a good succession? Can I change my my ratio requirement? Can I change my schedule? I also have a much less sophisticated horse too actually who aren't as solid in their foundation lessons. And I'm not as confident that backing was going to pop out. And when it didn't pop out within the first handful of seconds, it, I shifted my whole approach to, okay, well now I'm, I'm looking for just a, the the smallest of weight shifts. I'm looking for the smallest of muscle movements. And now we're shaping in a more traditional way of shaping. Every response is going to produce a reinforcer, but what the what my unit of my responses changes as we go. And that has to do with what my learner is telling me or what I already know, how I can arrange the environment. You know, Joe Joe talks about degrees of freedom is one of the things, you know, how many options are available to the learner. And I also like to think about degrees of freedom in terms of how many options are available to the handler. How much can I change my environment to have this behavior just emerge. I have a lot of degrees of freedom, right? Like my horses are on my personal property. They're the only horses that are on my property. If I want to set up a chute and then move it and then take it down and then put it back up, I can do that wherever I want. You know, the only person I'm going to offend is me or my husband. But if I was at a boarding barn, (laughs) I would have fewer degrees of freedom, right? Like I might not be able to work at a time of day when there's fewer distractions, I might not be able to set my shoot up in the smack middle of my arena where there's nothing else going on around it. It's not near the nibliest bits of grass on the edge. And so I've got to think about what does my learner know and then what are my learner's degrees of freedom in terms of the skills that they have? And then what are my degrees of freedom in terms of how much opportunity do I have to use new skills and, and change the environment in ways that make it easy?
0: So we've been using the word requirement a great deal. Is requirement synonym with criteria, or are they different? There's a lot to mull over from this part of the conversation, so I think this is a good place to stop for now. I'm always a little hesitant to break into these conversations because I want to hear what's coming next, and I'm sure you do as well. But we're about to enter a really fun and important part of the afternoon's conversation. So this is a good stopping point. We're going to begin next time with the question I just posed. Can a requirement and criteria be used interchangeably? Or are there differences in the definitions of these terms that matter when we are describing behavior? This question led to a lengthy and very fascinating discussion. But I'm not only going to make you wait, I'm going to make you wait beyond next time because our next episode will bring us to an astounding milestone. It's going to be our 250th episode. We're going to mark that occasion with a special event. But since I like fun surprises, I'm going to make you wait until next time to find out what we're going to be doing. So until then... Train well and have fun with your horses.